O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, the best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are in a continuing study of the fourth gospel. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'm going to continue to say that until you begin to bring them. And I see some of them here, so I'm so grateful for those of you who have. John chapter 1, we're going to go ahead and read through the first 13 verses, although as you can see on the screen today, we're going to concentrate on two in particular, verses 6, 7, and really a portion of 8, so three verses altogether. So beginning at verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we first began this study of John's gospel some weeks ago, I pointed out that all four of the gospels begin in a slightly different way. Matthew and Luke, of course, begin with a record of Jesus' ancestry, a list of genealogies. We said that Mark's gospel begins with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, with his baptism in the Jordan River, about 30 years into Jesus' life. And we said that John begins in an entirely different way. He goes back into the mists of time, in fact, before time, before creation, to the preexistent Logos, the Word, by whom all things and through whom all things were made. But what is interesting is that while all four of the Gospels begin in a different way, there is a point where the narratives converge. And they all converge with the person of John the Baptist. And that's where we are today, verses 6 through 8. We have been talking about the Logos, who is with God and who was God, by whom all things were made, who came to be light. We talked about the significance of light in the ancient world, that light performed primarily two functions. It produced heat and it produced illumination, light. But now we come all of a sudden in the midst of this discussion about the light, the word, who we know is Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, we have this figure of John the Baptist who appears on the scene. And he plays a prominent role in all four of the Gospels. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, Jesus goes so far as to describe John the Baptist as the greatest man ever born of women. Now, if you think about it, that is about the highest praise 
coming as it does from the lips of Jesus Christ. And I say that's significant because if you think about it, we don't pay much attention to John the Baptist, do we? I mean, how many times do you hear a sermon on John the Baptist? John the Baptist didn't write a single book of the New Testament. We hear a great deal about the Apostle Paul. We hear a great deal about Peter. We hear about the Twelve. But we don't often talk about John the Baptist. And yet Jesus said, of all the men born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest. That's not just anybody's opinion. That is Jesus' opinion. So that is high praise Indeed, this man, John the Baptist. What is significant about John, of course, is the fact that he is really the hinge. He is the hinge between the old covenant and the new covenant. John's appearance on the scene signals the fact that the Old Testament has come to a close. The New Testament has begun. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets from the end of the book of Malachi until the inauguration of what is described in the book of Matthew. There had been silence for hundreds of years until all of a sudden the last of God's great prophets appears on the scene. And that is John the Baptist. So he really is a significant figure. And as I said, he plays a prominent role in all four of the gospels, but not surprising, not surprising. John introduces us to the Baptist in a strange way. Now, we've already pointed out the fact that this fourth gospel is unique in that it includes certain things that the other gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not include. And we said that it is also significant in that it excludes things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize, but we find that they are clearly absent here in John. So while all four of the Gospels talk to us about John the Baptist, it should not be the least bit surprising that when we come to this fourth Gospel, John the Baptist is introduced to us in a way that is different from the others. And it's different in the things that are, for example, lacking. One of the things you'll notice as you read through the gospel of John, as he talks to us about John the Baptist. Now, he's just introducing us to John here in verses 6 through 8. A little confusing when I say John and John. Um, I'll try to clarify that by saying the fourth gospel and John or John the Baptist. But what is interesting is that he introduces us here in verses 6 through 8, and then he goes on again to talk more about the Logos, but then he's going to come back to John the Baptist in verses 19 and following. You'll notice that. So this is just sort of an introduction to John the Baptist here. But even in the introduction, this fourth gospel presents this significant figure in a way that is different from the other gospels. For example, you'll notice that there is no mention whatsoever in the fourth gospel to John the Baptist as a preacher. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is the thing that is most prominent about him is that he was out in the wilderness and he was preaching to the people. And we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to hear him in the wilderness. And what was the message that he was proclaiming? It was a message of repentance. Repentance. Why? Because he said the kingdom of God, the long anticipated, long promised kingdom of God had finally arrived. And now was the time to repent. And you know what that word repentance means. Metanoia, it means to have a change of mind. But not just a change of mind, but a change of mind that results in a change of heart. That results in a change of living and a change of direction. 
That was the great message that John the Baptist preached out there in the wilderness. Everybody knows that. And yet there's absolutely no mention here in the fourth gospel of John as a preacher necessarily. So that seems to be almost wholly ignored. Now you'll see as we go on that the fourth gospel presupposes many of the things that are explicit in the other gospels, but nevertheless, John sort of glosses over that part of the Baptist ministry. There's no mention of John the Baptist's ministry of baptism. We know that all those who went out into the wilderness confessing their sins as a sign that they were truly sorry for their misdeeds went down into the waters of the Jordan River and they were baptized. Baptism was actually a Jewish rite. We think of it as an entirely New Testament rite. It would be changed in the New Testament. Jesus would talk about the baptism of John as opposed to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the reality was, baptism was a rite within the Jewish community, and John the Baptist capitalized on that. Again, we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea, huge crowds of people went out into the wilderness to hear this strange man who was clothed in camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to see him. And as they listened to his message, we're told they were cut to the quick. And it's a sign of their sorrow And their change of heart, their change of mind, their change of direction, they went down into the river to be baptized by John. And yet there is no mention of John baptizing people here in this fourth gospel. Now he presupposes that. In fact, when we encounter him again in verses 19 and following, we're told that he's down by the Jordan River. So it's not as though the fourth gospel is oblivious or ignorant of the fact that John the Baptist did indeed baptize people. It's just not his interest. The fourth gospel is just not interested in that aspect of the Baptist ministry. There's no mention of John the Baptist's denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders. We're told that when all of these people were going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, wanted to see what this was all about. You know, they were notoriously jealous. They were, they were jealous of Jesus for the fact that when Jesus spoke, it was like E.F. Hutton. Remember that old E.F. Hutton commercial? When E.F. Hutton talks, what? People listen. And that's the way it was with Jesus. And the reason they were jealous of Jesus is that Jesus had never been to any of the rabbinical academies. He had never been formally licensed to preach by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authoritative body. And yet, here he was preaching. And what's more, we're told that thousands of people went out to hear him. They were drawn to him like moth to a flame. And moreover, when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, before Jesus ever appeared on the scene and was a thorn in the sides of of the Jewish religious leaders, John the Baptist appeared on the scene and it was the same situation. John was an outlier. He was different. He was bizarre. I think that's a fair way to describe him. He was bizarre and yet people were drawn to him. There was something about him. There was an anointing that was upon him and people were drawn to him. And so we're told the Jewish religious leaders went out into the wilderness to see what this was all about. I always imagine them standing on the brow of the hill, 
listening to what John has to say, seeing all these people going down into the wilderness and down into the river to be baptized. And John is calling them to repentance. He's reminding them of their sins. They're being cut to the quick, as I said. They're going down and they're repenting. And you can imagine the Jewish religious leaders are saying, oh, well, this is very interesting, but of course this doesn't apply to us. I mean, after all, what do we need to repent of? What have we ever done wrong? And so I always imagine them turning away, at which point John the Baptist says what every preacher wishes he could say but would never dare say, You brood of vipers! (laughs) You brood of vipers! I would never say that here. But in other places that I've been, you might want to say it. But he calls them a brood of vipers. He said, Who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that was the great message that John proclaimed. And that took a great deal of courage to stand up to the authorities like that. And this aspect of John's ministry appears prominently in the other Gospels. It's not really here in the fourth Gospel. There's no mention, most significantly, of Jesus' baptism in the fourth Gospel. That's where Mark's gospel begins, for Pete's sakes. Right there at the beginning. As far as Mark is concerned, those previous 30 years, they were insignificant by comparison to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they they all mention the fact that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It's that great significant sign of Jesus formally associating with fallen people, even though he was nothing like them. And yet here's what's interesting. There is no mention of Jesus being baptized by John in this fourth gospel. And furthermore, there's very little biographical information about John the Baptist. About his imprisonment, his beheading. All of those things that we find so prominent about this man seem to be silent, at least here in this introduction. To the fourth gospel. Now that's not to say, as I said, that the fourth gospel is oblivious or ignorant of these other aspects of the Baptist ministry. It's just that John is not necessarily concerned with these things. He wants to focus on another aspect of John the Baptist ministry. I suppose it would be like picking up a book about Winston Churchill that talks about Winston Churchill's speeches, that finest hour speech. Or there's a whole chapter or a series of chapters on his history of the English-speaking people, that Nobel Prize-winning piece of literature. But no mention of the fact that he was the prime minister, no mention of the fact that he was a wartime leader. You would know if you read that kind of a book that the author's not really interested in Churchill as a politician. You would know that the author is interested... And Churchill is a what? A writer. As a writer. Because the emphasis is on his speeches and, and his written word. You would say, okay, it's not as though the author is ignorant of the fact that he was a wartime leader or a politician or any of those things. It's just that his particular focus is on what? The man as a writer. As a man of letters. Well, that's the way it is 
with the fourth gospel when it comes to John the Baptist. It is not as though this fourth gospel is somehow ignorant of all of these other things that John the Baptist did. It's just that this fourth gospel wants to emphasize a particular aspect of John the Baptist's ministry. And what is that particular aspect? That he was a witness. Yeah, I guess it's up there on the screen, isn't it? That some of you, I thought, wow, that really, you're really insightful. But then I realized it's up there on the screen. Yes, he wants to emphasize that the Baptist is a witness. He may have done all of these other things, but the fourth gospel is concerned with that aspect of his ministry more than any other. Take a look again at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a what? A witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. Now there, in three verses, you have that word witness three times. Witness is a legal term. A witness is called to the stand to give what? Testimony. Testimony to things that he or she knows. That's what John the Baptist was sent to do. All of those other aspects of his ministry are important. But as far as the fourth gospel is concerned, what is most important is that John the Baptist was a witness. And moreover, he was an effective witness. Those of you who are lawyers and you have to put a witness on the stand, you know that that can be a tricky thing. Because once they're on the stand, you really don't know what they're going to say. And so what you want is somebody that is well-trained, well-prepared, well-prepped before they ever get on the stand so that they don't say anything that's going to put a hole in your case. You want an effective witness. Well, John the Baptist was an effective witness. What is it about John the Baptist? We need to take a look at this because we're going to see it has great bearing on our lives as individuals. What was it about John the Baptist that made him such an effective witness over and against all of the others? I mean, there were lots of people you could have mentioned here, but the fourth gospel mentions John. What was it about John as a witness that made him so effective? Let me suggest a number of things to you today. First of all, he was an effective witness because he was called from God. He was sent from God. I would say the same thing applies to the apostles. Uh, Paul, when he writes his letters, often points out that he was an apostle called by God. In other words, this wasn't some sort of vocation that he had chosen for himself. This was not something that he decided to do. You know, you're going off to college or university. What am I going to major in? I don't know. It's the junior year. I've got to major in something, so I'm going to declare a major in, well, apostleship. Uh, You didn't do that sort of thing. An apostle was somebody who was specifically called by God. And we're told that John was a man who was specifically sent from God. That's part of what made him an effective witness. God calls us to ministry. We don't choose that on our own. And that's significant because if God has called you to ministry, then God is going to equip you for ministry. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I can't do this, that, or the other thing in the name of Christ because I just don't feel qualified. I've said to you before, God doesn't always call the qualified. 
but he always qualifies the called. Well, that was the case with John the Baptist. The first thing is that he was sent from God. Here's the second thing that made him an effective witness. Verse 8, he was not the light. That is to say, John recognized that he was not the light. John understood that he did not have all the answers. John understood that he was not the destination. John understood that he was merely a signpost. Now that's very important because sometimes people get into their minds that they really are the light. They get into their minds that they really do have all the answers. I once had a lady that came up to me after church, and she was laughing out loud. And I said, what's so funny? She said, well, and you went down the aisle today in the procession in all your flowing robes. My little boy said to me, is that God? I said, well, I hope you told him no. It was just a priest with a Messiah complex. But that's often the way it is, isn't it? When somebody comes to us for advice, we roll up our sleeves and we say, oh, well, let me tell you how you ought to do things. We think we have the answers. We think we have all the wisdom, all of the insight. We think we know how other people ought to live their lives. And we are more than eager to share that wisdom with them. One of the things that's extraordinary about John is that he was under no illusions. He knew he was not the light This becomes clear when you read through the synoptics, even though they are different, John and Matthew, Mark and Luke, nevertheless, they do blend together beautifully. They do complement each other. John says, I must decrease that he might increase. So he was an effective witness because he was sent from God. He was an effective witness because he recognized he was not the light. But he understood that he was sent to bear witness to the light. That he was to point other people to the light. It's interesting. I'll come back to this in a moment. Jonathan Edwards, who is probably America's greatest theologian, the only real theologian that we ever produced. We produced some great preachers, some great teachers, some great Bible students. um, But probably in terms of theologians, John, uh, rather, um, Jonathan Edwards was probably the greatest theologian that we ever produced. But Jonathan Edwards once described John the Baptist as a burning and a shining lamp. As a burning and a shining lamp. But he said if he burns and he shines, he is like the burning and the shining of the moon. He's not the source of true light. He simply reflects it. And John the Baptist understood that. Here's the other thing. He understood that while he was not the light and was called to bear witness to the light... He was called to bear witness to the light. Why? So that others might believe. You know, that is the highest calling that anyone can have is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, with others. Everything else that you and I labor for in this world, everything you and I work for in this world will perish with us. And even if it lives for some time beyond us, it will not live forever. Because everything that you and I labor for is temporal. You ever think about that? 
You can build a magnificent company, build a magnificent estate, but I guarantee you it's not going to last forever. Now, it may last for some time, but it will not last forever. It will perish just as we will perish. But there is one work that we can do that will not perish, that will last for all eternity, and that is to bear witness to the light so that others might believe. And if others believe, that is the work that is eternal. Because anybody who comes into fellowship with Jesus Christ, and of course that's what he's going to go on to say, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the work that is eternal because a person who becomes a child of God becomes a child of a God for eternity. So every person you lead to Christ during the course of your lifetime, that is a work that will last forever. Now you think about that. John the Baptist was engaged in that kind of work, sent that others might believe in the light. Now, all of this is put forward to us at this introduction, not simply for information's sake, but to remind us at the very beginning of this gospel that that is what being a Christian is really all about. You and I, in terms of our Christian vocation, are called to be what John the Baptist was to be a witness. To testify. And here's the interesting thing. John's witness was a verbal witness. That's the final thing you need to understand about John the Baptist. That he bore witness to the light. He recognized he was not the light. He was sent from God to bear witness to the light so that others might believe. But his witness was a verbal witness. I understand that when St. Francis sent out his missionaries... He sent them out with these words, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And some people have taken away from that the idea that as long as I live a moral life, that is sufficient. But I'm here to tell you that it is not sufficient for the simple reason that the world is filled with moral atheists. People who, quite frankly, and I say this with some embarrassment, Some people who do not believe in God, but nevertheless live a moral life that is more noble than some Christians I know. So to simply say, well, people will know by the way I live my life, who I'm bearing witness to, that is not necessarily so. They may come up to you and ask why you live differently, but when they ask that question, you have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. That is to say, sooner or later, a verbal witness, a willingness to speak about Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Get over it. (laughs) A verbal witness. One of the things you'll notice as you read through the gospel of John is that he mentions seven witnesses in his gospel. He said, there are seven witnesses to Jesus Christ, seven witnesses to the light that was coming into the world, seven witnesses to the word. And you can find them throughout the gospel. There is the witness of Jesus Christ himself. 
Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. There is the witness of God the Father. God the Father witnesses to Jesus Christ. There is the witness of God the Holy Spirit. You know, that's actually the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. When we think about the three persons of the Trinity, most of us are familiar most with the first two. God the Father, because he's generally the one we pray to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, etc. And Jesus Christ, of course, who we hear so much about, God the Son. But God the Holy Spirit, well, he seems a little strange, especially to Episcopalians and Anglicans, you know, We don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. But do you know that one of the primary ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, is to bear witness to Jesus Christ? John Stott described the Holy Spirit as the shy and reticent member of the Trinity. Because he doesn't draw attention to himself, he draws attention to Christ His goal, his role, his ministry is to convict the world of sin and the need for righteousness. And once you're convicted of your sin and your need for a right relationship with God, then he shines the light on him who is the Savior of the world. That is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. There is the witness of the scriptures themselves. John ends this gospel in that way. He says, and we talked about this when we first began, he said, Jesus did many other signs and wonders that are not recorded in this book. In fact, if they were all recorded, I doubt that the world could contain the volumes. He said, but these have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ. There is the witness of Christ's own work, his signs, his wonders, his miracles. On one occasion, Jesus said, if you don't believe in me because of what I say, at least believe because of the works. And many people did believe because of the works. We're told that Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness and the first words that he said to Jesus were these, we know And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. So he's speaking on behalf of these bodies. He said, we know that you are a man who has come from God because no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. So the works, it's interesting. In John's gospel, the miracles of Jesus are never described as miracles. Did you know that? That word is never used to describe the extraordinary feats that Jesus performed, the opening of the eyes of the blind, the healing of lepers, the raising up of the dead, none of that is ever referred to as a miracle in the Gospel of John. They are always referred to as signs. Now that's significant for a number of reasons. A sign points you to the destination, but the sign is not the destination. In other words, we should never get caught up on the miracles themselves. And many people in Jesus' day did. But that wasn't the point. On one occasion, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Feeding of the multitude. Feeding of the 5,000. Incidentally, just as a sidebar, incidentally, that is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. The feeding of the multitude, probably because it made a big impact. Remember, this was an agrarian culture. 
Uh, they didn't have the Piggly Wiggly or the Publix or the Harris Teeter where you could go down and get food. Food was a rare thing. It was a precious thing in an agrarian culture. If there was any kind of a blight or drought, whole communities could disappear in an instant. And here was Jesus, a one-man S&S cafeteria, who could take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed a multitude, and it really impressed the people. But on one occasion, we're told that the people were so impressed by that, that Jesus, being exhausted, decided to pass to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but the people raced him around to the opposite bank to meet him there. And here's what Jesus said to them when he saw them. He said, I tell you the truth. You are seeking for me, not because of the signs and the wonders or the words, but because you ate your fill of the fish and the loaves. But do not strive for that which satisfies for only a time. I am the true bread which has come down from heaven. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the works bear witness to Jesus Christ, but they are not an end in and of themselves. And then, of course, we have the witness of John the Baptist. But there is one more witness recorded in the Gospel of John. It's the witness of ordinary men and women. It's the witness of men and women who say that they are Christians, and what they're saying if they are Christians is that their lives have been changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. And because they have had that life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, they are therefore called to bear witness in the same way that John did. As I said, that's why John is introduced to us here at the beginning in the way that he is, to set us an example to follow. Now, let me just give you a couple of simple examples, two examples in particular, of people, ordinary people that came into contact with Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, that's what you're claiming. You are claiming that you have had an encounter with God in Christ. And I want you to notice what they did immediately after. Before I get to them, let me just give you an example of Paul's own life. Paul, the apostle. You remember that we're told that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. He was opposed to Jesus Christ. You know that he was out to persecute the church. You all know that he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. That light was flashing about. He was knocked off his horse. He was blinded and so forth. And he was led into the city of Damascus by hand. And God raised up a prophet, basically, and Ananias was his name, sent him in there. I love the way the book of Acts describes it. It even gives us the address. Go to the home of Judas on Straight Street. So it's like, you know, go up and see John on Chalmers. Um, They get the address, and he goes there, and he lays hands on Paul, and Paul receives his sight. And what was the first thing that Paul did, we're told, after he received his sight? Very first thing he did, he began to tell others. Now, at that point, he only had a rudimentary knowledge of Jesus. But it was enough to tell others what Christ had done for him. Paul didn't have a graduate degree in Christian theology at that point. What he did have was an encounter. And if you're a Christian, you've had the same. Let me give you an example of two people. 
who had this kind of encounter with Jesus and how they witnessed, how they witnessed effectively. The first one is found in John chapter 1. So go ahead and skip ahead. It's going to be some time before we get there. So um, perhaps you'll have forgotten what I'm saying right now by the time we get there and we can go over it again. But the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now this John is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now there's a perfect example of witnessing. Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a follower of Jesus. You'll notice that when Jesus called his disciples to be his disciples, that's exactly what he would say. He would say two words, follow me. To be a Christian means to follow Jesus. Now, that has all kinds of implications for your life, I recognize. But simply put, that's what it means to be a disciple. And so we're told that these two who had been followers of John the Baptist stopped following John and began to follow Jesus. Why? Because John recognized that he was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. And when he saw the light, he pointed him out. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're told that these two disciples left. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. I think that's a wonderful invitation. You know, sometimes people will come up to you on the street and they'll say, You know, I hear about St. Philip's. What kind of a church is that? And sometimes you don't know what to say. I'm telling you what to say from here on out. If somebody comes up and says, hey, Phillips, well, you, you know, what, what's going on over there? Or, you know, I, I hear some strange things are happening over there at St. Phillips. Uh, you know, the answer you give is this. Come and see. Come and see. You don't have to put up a defense. You don't have to give an explanation. All you have to do is issue an invitation. Come and see. That's what Jesus said. They said, what are you all about? John told us that you're the Lamb of God. Where, what are you seeking? Well, come and see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and who followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, there is a perfect example of witnessing. Somebody pointed Andrew to Jesus Christ. He had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He came and he saw. And the next thing that he did is he went and he told his brother Peter, we found the Messiah. And what's Peter's answer? We found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. Folks, you can do that. You are called to do that. If you're a Christian, there was an Andrew in your life. Who's the Andrew in your life? Who was the person that led you into a living relationship with Jesus Christ? Whoever that person is, you need to give thanks for them. Because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God today because they were willing to share the good news of the light of the world with you. 
And all you need to do now is invite somebody else to come and see what it's all about. That's one example. Let me give you one more example before we close. It's in John chapter 4. Now, this is a story that is a rather lengthy story, so we're not going to look at the whole thing. We're just going to look at verses 39 and following, but I'll give you the background here. Jesus was traveling through the region of Samaria. Now, I think most of you probably know a little bit about the geography of ancient Palestine. I call it Palestine as opposed to Israel because in the first century, Israel did not exist as a geographical territory. This was the Roman province of Palestine. And the Roman province of Palestine was basically divided into three sections. There was what was known as Galilee in the north. And those of you who have been to Israel with me, you've actually been to Galilee. You've been on the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus performed most of his ministry in Galilee. Then to the south, in and around Jerusalem, the holy city is what is known as Judea. But right between Galilee and Judea was a swath of land that was occupied by a people who were, according to the Jews, half-breeds. The area was called Samaria. The Samaritans were people who had been Jews, but their land had been occupied by foreigners, and they had wed the foreigners, they interbred with the foreigners, and so as far as the Jews were concerned, they were traitors. Uh, The Jews actually hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles. Gentiles, at least, were ignorant. That wasn't the case as far as they were concerned with Samaritans. Which means that Jews, if you were traveling from Judea in the south, from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north, or more likely from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south for one of the great festivals, you would have to travel through Samaria to get there. Most Jews didn't want to do that. Even stepping foot in Samaritan territory, they regarded as being made unclean. So they would take a much longer, more dangerous trans-Jordan route in order to get to Jerusalem, bypassing Samaria altogether. But what's interesting is that we're told Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, there was no rule that said he had to go through Samaria. Most Jews would have said you should avoid it. But obviously, Jesus felt compelled in his spirit to go through Samaria. As he's going through Samaria, he comes to a well. It's hot. Those of you who have been in the Holy Land, you know that this is a hot part of the world, especially in the summer. It's hot and it's dry. He comes to a well. We're told the disciples had gone into town, into the village to buy food. And Jesus is sitting there at the well. It is the middle of the day. And out comes this woman. She rounds the corner. And when I picture it in my mind's eye, and I encourage you to use your imagination as you depict these scenes, as she rounds the corner with her large jar to get the water that she needs to do her chores, she comes around the corner and she sees this man sitting on the edge of the well. And she's a little jarred by that. She's coming out in the middle of the day. Most women never went out in the middle of the day. The women always went to the well in the Middle East at the beginning of the day so that they could collect their water and have the water that they needed for their chores throughout the day. Moreover, they went there at the beginning of the day because it was the gathering place for all of the people. That's where everybody came to talk and and to hear what's going on in the village and to gossip. And this woman did not want to be there when all this gossiping was going on because she was the topic of the gossip. 
That becomes very clear in the text. She was a notorious woman. She was a soiled dove. And so the last thing that she wants to see, she comes around the corner knowing that she's gossip is a man. Oh. But she has no choice, so she goes down there, probably trying to avoid eye contact with Jesus, and he asks her for a drink. That's even more jarring to her. And she turns to him, and she can tell by the way he's dressed that he's not from around here. He's not from Samaria. He's a Jew. And so she says to him, why are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? You know that Jews and Samaritans have nothing to do with each other. At which point Jesus says to her, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking him for a drink. And she said, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. How can you offer me a drink? And what Jesus does is he goes on to reveal himself to her in a most dramatic way. He said, I am the true water. If you were to get a drink from me, you would never be thirsty again. It would become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, go call your husband. At which point she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you know, that's right. (laughs) Funny thing about that. Actually, you've had several husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And I love the woman's response. It's, it's the greatest case of understatement. I can see, sir, that you are a prophet. <laughs> now, what Jesus does is he gen- generously, gently opens up to her the good news of who he is. And she has an encounter with this man. It was unlike any other encounter she'd ever had with a man. Every other man had exploited her. Every other man had used her. Here was a man who wanted nothing from her. All he wanted was to give her something. All he wanted was to quench the thirst of her parched soul. And we're told that when he did, she suddenly ran back to town. And and the part that I love is she left behind her container. She forgot what she'd come out there for. And she ran back into the town. And that's where we pick up the narrative. And she went back into the town. And she began to tell everyone. She said, come And see, there it is again. She said, come and see a man. Come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Verse 39. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's what it means to witness, folks. And if you're incapable of doing just that, if you're incapable of saying to somebody, come and see a man, 
who changed my life. Come and see what it's all about. If you're incapable of saying that, it may be that you've never really encountered him. And what I want you to notice here is that in both of these occasions, with Andrew and Peter, with a Samaritan woman and the people of the village, none of them had any training. None of them had ever gone to seminary. None of them had memorized the books of the Bible. But they'd all encountered Jesus. And their lives were changed as a consequence. And there was within them this burning desire to go and bring others to him. They knew they weren't the light. But having met him, they'd been sent by God now to bear witness to the light that others might believe. My friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. And we are each called to be witnesses like John the Baptist. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the witness of this extraordinary individual, John the Baptist, the greatest of men ever born of women, but great not because of anything in him, but because he was such an effective witness in bringing others to the one who is the true light, who warms our hearts, shines his gentle warming light on those dark places in our lives that he might take them and fill them with his love and his grace and his mercy. Grant us the courage, the strength, and the desire to bring others, every man, woman, child we meet, help us to seek the opportunity, to seize the opportunity, and to invite them to come and see the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.